All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Andy. My wife and I, we co-lead Fireside together. We are almost five years old as a church. We'll be five years old in December. And uh, it is a holiday weekend, so I know it's, it's kind of one of those crazy weekends. And so we're, we're changing things up a little bit. Um, so we're not going to do a communion time or response time this Sunday. Um, and the kids are going to uh, be in the playground half the time. We're going to call it a relationship building kids time. Um, but we are so excited that you guys are here and we are jumping in. I'm just going to catch you up real quick. We are jumping in, and we're talking about Paul and Paul's journey. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul was pretty much the first missionary sent out. And he's going around, you know, starting probably about four years after the resurrection to where we're going to begin today, about 27 years, plus or minus a few years after the resurrection. And he's just planting churches all over the, the um, Europe and the Middle East and Asia and Philippi and Galatia and Thessalonica. Nika and Corinth. And so this is what he's doing. And there's this tension, you know, between him and the Jews because he's talking about another way, the way. He's talking about Jesus being the Savior. And the Jews, especially the leaders, they don't like this. And so they're trying to hunt Paul down, who we're going to find out in a little bit, was a former Jewish leader. So this is where we're at. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Acts 26. We're going to be in Acts 26. And I just want to thank Joel Spruance. Last week, Joel, just what a great message. And this is when opposition becomes opportunity. And so Paul gets arrested, and he can be freed, but instead he appeals to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen. And so now he's stuck in prison, but he's using that as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and an opportunity to go to Rome. And so here he is in Jerusalem, and he's about to appear before King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa is kind of like the governor of Judea, so he's under Roman control. But he is Jewish himself. So he believes the Old Testament. That's what the Jews believe, the Old Testament. They believe in God, but they don't believe Jesus as a son of God. And in fact, he was actually a pretty good king for Judaism. He wanted to cut taxes, and he also wanted to make Jerusalem look better, so he invested in the city. And so here we are, right before he's going to go. And it was kind of, you can imagine this scene, right? Paul's on trial, and here's the king, and here's Fetus, who's also a political figure. They're on trial, and there's people watching, and Paul comes up, and he's going to give his defense. And put yourself in those shoes, what would you do? What would you say? Would you plead for mercy? Would you want to be freed? What would you do? So let's begin there in Acts 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. See, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life to my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. 
And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Let's pray real quick. Lord, I pray that Paul's words that were spoken 2,000 years ago would resonate with our words that would give us encouragement as we go out and live our lives, Jesus. And for those here right now, Lord, who are struggling with doubt, doubt that there is a God, doubt that Jesus was resurrected, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would invade this room for them to see clearly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't know whose kid that was, but it's bad parenting. That was my kid, by the way. (laughs) Um, There was a time where school was starting, and you know if you're a parent, you get the kid list, right? And the kid list has all the supplies you need to get, like colored pencils, um, notebooks, crayons. You know, we had to bring in wipes, all this stuff. So we got this list, and it was the end of the month for us, and we didn't have the money in our budget to get the school supplies that we allowed it. Now, we probably could have gotten the money from savings or someplace else, but at this month, things were, were, were strict. We didn't have the budget for it. And so Kate went down in the basement, to look for school supplies, and she opened up Ellie's bins. Ellie is our daughter who passed away a couple years ago, and she went through these things to find colored pencils, and she comes up, and of course, she's an emotional wreck. How is it that we don't have enough money to buy colored pencils, and I have to go and do that? And, And furthermore, why couldn't we have enough money just to take our kids out school shopping and maybe buy an outfit. Now, you don't need to do that, right? We have enough clothes or buy new shoes or do any of that stuff. So this is what she had said. And, you know, I tried to encourage her. I'm like, you know, but we have enough. God has sustained us for enough. Isn't that great? And she's like, yeah, no, I get it. Two days later, two days later, I run into someone that I hadn't seen for years. I run into them, and then later after running into them, they send me a text and say, hey, could you give me a call? And so I call her. And she says, hey, I, I need to tell you something. I was like, well, what is it? She's like, and you cannot say no, because if you say no, then the Lord is going to keep pestering me. And the Lord has been pestering me since I've seen you. And I said, well, what is it? She said, the Lord told me that I need to give you money for school supplies. And not only that, the Lord told me that he wants you to take your kids out to get a nice outfit, to get a new backpack, and get some new shoes. So you have to accept the money that I'm about to send you. Because this is from the Lord. And, and just so you know, that conversation did not come in like the five-minute conversation that I ran into her. And I come back and I tell Kate, and of course she's emotional. Like, are you kidding me? I was like, yeah. She, she said, specifically school supplies. I'm like, yeah. Now the question I have for you is this. Was that God or was it just coincidence? Someone, I told this story to somebody, and she said, well, that stuff happens to you all the time. I said, well, I don't think it happens to us any more than anybody else. I just think we have eyes to see it. Do you have the eyes to see the Lord moving in your life? Do you have the eyes to see, hey, you're, you're begging and pleading for a job change, and you get a job change, but you don't give God the credit? 
You're struggling with this. You're struggling with that. You're asking for this. And when those things happen, I mean, go look back at history and you'll see God along the way. The question is, do you have eyes to see it or do you chalk it up to something else? Is it just coincidence? Is it just naturalistic? What is it? And so here is Paul. Paul is kind of asking this question in, in a way. And he says this in verse 8. Why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? Now, we're going to get into that a little bit. But let me just give you a backstory that Agrippa was Jewish. So he believed that God had done some pretty miraculous things. You look in the Old Testament. You look at what Jews believe, that, and so do we, that we believe that, you know, God said, hey, march around a city and watch the walls fall down, and that happened. Sent Moses in, plagues came from God, a Red Sea parted, the sun set still for a time. Abraham, who was 100, had a kid. Sarah, who was 75, had a kid. These are pretty unpredictable crazy things that God's done. So he's saying, Grippa, you believe in all this crazy stuff, but yet you don't believe that God could raise the dead, that, raise, that could raise Jesus from the dead? And sometimes I think we think the same thing. Well, that was in the past, but what I'm dealing with right now in the present, none of that matters. And I just want to say this, that God has a history of doing unpredictable and unlikely things. So if you're in a position right now where you're, you can't explain it, or you can't explain how you're going to get through it, maybe that's God actively at work in your situation. Because God's in the habit of doing unpredictable and weird things. If you're experiencing something that doesn't make sense, maybe God's like, exactly. Because if you can understand it, then it would be at your level and I'm at a whole new level. Well, let's continue. This is his argument in verse 9. He said, I too, this is Paul saying, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my foe against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to the another to have them punished and tried to force them to blasphemy. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. What I think about Paul saying is, that, yeah, a man coming back from the dead is crazy. I agree with you. What we believe as believers, for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, this is a hard, crazy belief. I don't, I don't want to deny that. I don't want to sugarcoat that. And he's saying, I agree with you so much that I was adamantly opposed to you, uh, to this, that I would go around, I would persecute, I would kill, do all these things that he just claimed. I get it, King Agrippa. I get it, anyone who's there. Maybe you could say that. I get it to any of my neighbors, to my friends, to my family who doesn't share a belief that I have. Yeah, it is crazy. So how do we bring people to understand that though it's crazy, it's also reality? And here's what Paul says in verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here to testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Fetus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent fetus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God, and not only to you, only that you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am except for these chains. Man, what a defense. What a defense that King, that Paul gives, and I, and I love it. See, he's not trying to tell King Grippa that Jesus existed. This is a debate right now that many are asking, did Jesus even exist? And I just want to just lay the groundwork that virtually every historian will say that Jesus existed. Every major religion, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus, all in their texts have Jesus as a human, as a man who came. Now, they all don't say that he died and rose again, but they said that during this time, Jesus did exist. So that's not the question. The question is, does he still exist? And this is the question that I want you to ask yourself. So I want to give some new scholars quotes, but a lot of these scholars are non-Christians. One is Paula Fredrickson, who's not a Christian. She's a New Testament scholar, and she says this, I know in their own terms What they saw was a raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. Now, I cannot prove that Jesus was resurrected. Similar to the fact that I cannot prove that George Washington crossed the Delaware. But there is compelling evidence for his resurrection, just as there's compelling evidence that George Washington crossed the Delaware. And so I just want to take a minute and pause, and I want to go through some of these things. And this is a little bit unique for my style, but I do think it's important. And this is not meant to convince, but to give confidence. I just need you to understand that. 
This is not meant to convince, but to give confidence. So what was happening here is that King Agrippa most likely believed that the body of Jesus was stolen. There's many arguments there. One, maybe Jesus never died, right? That he kind of resurrected on his own. This has so many holes in it because Jesus doesn't go on and live the life that a regular human does. The disciples say he had this transfigured body. He was coming in and out. He was here and there and one. And so that doesn't make sense. And then after 40 days, he ascended to heaven. So that has a lot of holes in it. Another big theory is that they got the wrong tomb. Well, the easiest thing to defeat that is to get the right tomb and say, hey, look, here's the body of Jesus. You guys are crazy. So the third is what we read in scriptures is what the Roman soldiers were bribed to tell um, the Romans is that his body was stolen by the disciples. And most likely this is where King Agrippa was because he knew that Jesus existed. He knew this was a big historical account. It was similar to like you say 9-11, even if you weren't there. It was around that same time period. 9-11 was what, 22 years ago? Jesus' resurrection at this time was about 26, 27 years ago. So you think about that, right? That's about the same time. So you're not going to dispute that it happened. So those are the things. So we're going to dive into was the body body stolen? And I believe that if the question of is Jesus resurrected is the most important question that you can ask. I want to say that again because I, I think so many people do even ask themselves that question. Is Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, true? My opinion is I don't think people care enough to even ask that question. They, they may say, oh, I don't believe it, but they don't really ask the question. I believe that if you seek, you will find, because that's what Jesus says. I believe if you truly ask yourself that question, if you truly to seek the answer, I believe that God is going to reveal himself to you over and over again. I do believe that. But so many people, they think, you know what, I don't have time for that question. It doesn't impact me enough. So I'm just kind of going to live like an agnostic life. I'm going to live there's something out there I just don't know. But I'm begging you for those who may be questioning, those who may be struggling with doubt, ask that question. Because it will transform your life for the good. Lee Strobel was a journalist in Chicago, and his wife became a believer. He was not a believer, and he was kind of confused. Why is my wife believing in this really weird religion where they worship a resurrected man? And so as a journalist in Chicago, he said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to prove her wrong and Christianity wrong. So he interviewed scholars, both non-secular and non-secular scholars. And he came out with a conclusion that not only is it real, but I want Jesus to invade my life. And he went on and he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. He wrote dozens more books. He's been an author. He's been a speaker. He's just built the kingdom in so many ways because he asked the questions and went to seek answers. So would you go and seek answers? It's also not a matter of wisdom. When I was in uh, a youth pastor, I would have some high school kids come up to me and they say, Andy, no offense, but I'm too smart to believe in Jesus. And to that, I'd be like, dude, I am so much smarter than you. <laughs> You're, yeah, have you seen your last grades? <laughs> It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of intelligence. I know a lot of PhDs that are atheists, and I know a lot of PhDs who worship Jesus. It's not, hey, if I get to know more, if I learn more, then I will learn that this is wrong. I'm telling you that is not the case. 
Paul was as educated as they came. And I believe he was chosen to show just that. And the disciples, they were just common folk like us, or like me anyways. So was the body stolen? All right, so number one, motivation for that lie. You're going to steal a body and you're going to claim this big religion. What would be your motivation? Every lie has a motivation. Mostly those motivations are selfish, power, money, safety, protection. So you got to ask yourself, what is the disciples' motivation? There had been many religious leaders that arose in power during that time. And when they were killed, they either were replaced or it dispersed and that movement stopped. But with Christianity, as Gamil said, he said, let these guys go because this is what we know. We killed Jesus, it should stop. But if it keeps growing, then we are fighting God himself. So what are the disciples' motivation? See, one is Christianity is not a religion that seeks power, but a religion that seeks sacrifice. It would be very interesting to say, hey, we're going to lie, and in this lie that we fear for our life, we are going to care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And there's historical evidence outside of Scripture that talk about how Christians, people of the way, would go out, and they're the ones who are on the front lines during famine. They're the ones who took care of the poor and the orphans, and to that point where Romans were just so, so infuriated by this. Because that culture was like, you just do you, survival of the fittest. If you are poor, then you should be poor. And that was their idea. So what are these people coming in? There's an article, Christianity Today said this, whatever these eyewitnesses saw, it transformed their lives to the point of being willing to suffer and to die for it. Corinthians recounts the journeys of Paul that he daily suffered for his conviction that Jesus appeared to him, that he was beaten, imprisoned, stoned, starved, lost at sea, and it was in daily in danger of all kinds of evil on his journeys throughout the Roman Empire. We also possess strong historical evidence that certain key eyewitnesses were martyred for their faith. Peter was crucified. James was stoned. Paul was beheaded. Whatever they saw, it was worth giving their lives for. They sealed their testimonies with their blood. Now, the truth be told that people will die for a lie. This is something that I kind of struggled with until I took a little deeper look. If you look at Nazis, they died for a lie thinking they were the supreme race. You go to cult groups, you see these mass suicides, that's a lie. Islam terrorists, you go back to 9-11, they were terrorists, they were suicide bombers, they died for a lie. But here's the difference. They died for a lie they didn't know was a lie. See, these disciples, if they created the lie, they're giving themselves up for a lie that they knew was a lie. There was an article and the religion wiki that says this, apologists point out that while people do die for lies, the actual issue is whether people die for what they knew to be a lie, also known as a lie of their own creation or contrary to the facts known to them. Psychology shows that people will not die for what they know to be false. So if they're dying for a lie, they're living a life for sacrifice for a lie, which is counterculture, you have to ask yourself, well, was it really even a lie? Something happened that changed them to go counterculture, to not seek power, but to seek sacrifice. To me, I come to the conclusion that the res what they saw was a resurrected Jesus. The second point is, if they were to lie, they would come up with a much better lie. 
Jewish law in the Mishnah says this, the oath of a testimony is conducted with men and not women. Now, how does this apply? Well, women were the first to report the resurrected Jesus. Women are key witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They're the first to be at the tomb. They're the first to, to tell the disciples. Now, if you're coming up with a lie, you are not going to come up with a lie that contradicts what their laws say. Uh, Justin Briley, an unbelievable, says this. Most people are unlikely to tell stories that reflect badly on themselves. But if you do tell an embarrassing story, the chances are it's true. Historian describes this phenomenon as criterion of embarrassment. A recorded story that is more likely to be true if it would have been embarrassing and inconvenient to those telling it. So if I were to come home and say, hey, hey, Kate, guess what? I, I was walking with all my groceries at the grocery store. I tripped. Groceries fell. Tomato sauce went ever. Got up. Slipped. Tomato sauce all over me. People are making fun of me. Baldy, baldy. And I run out crying. It's more likely that would be true than made up. Because how does that benefit me? That is a lie, by the way. So you understand. Like, if you're going to come up with a lie, you're going to come up with a better lie than what they came up that says, hey, we believe that a man came from the dead. You're crazy. I know it's crazy. Therefore, it must be true. The third and the last, and I'm going to dive into this, is that Gospels tell different stories. You hear this all the time, and I try not to get into debates, but people will say, hey, have you read the Bible? That contradicts himself. God Christians is a website and says this, in the battle with skeptics regarding Jesus' resurrection, Christians are in a no-win situation. If the resurrection accounts harmonize perfectly, skeptics will claim that the writers of the Gospel conspired together. If the resurrection accounts have some differences, skeptics will claim that the Gospels contradict each other and therefore cannot be trusted. The Gospels were written a generation after the resurrection. Many of you are like, huh, I didn't know that. Well, the reason is that most religions were carried on by oral traditions. Paul, the disciples, everyone's preaching what they saw. If you had a big encounter, let's say you were, this summer we were riding our bike and we saw a bear. It was a kind of a cool story. And we told a lot of people about it. But guess what? I haven't written it down anywhere. I just keep telling it. And this is kind of how. It was towards the end of the disciples' lives where they realized we need to know people. People need to know what we saw at first account. And so you had John and Matthew, who were disciples, who wrote it down. Mark, who most likely talked with Peter, tell me what you saw. Luke, who says that he was like, I'm going to record this. And he probably asked uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and a lot of other people, like, tell me what you saw. And when you read the Gospels, there are very slight differences in the resurrection. Was there one angel? Was there two angels? Who got to the tomb first? Was there more than one? Was there two women? Was there more than two women? So slight differences, which to me actually gives me confidence. Think about a story that about 30 years ago, and two people were there, I would ask you, and you'd probably be slight differences. When you uh, go, when they would ask survivors of the Titanic what happened, they all had slight differences. When did the power go out? How did it go? What happened? What did you hear? But no one questions that the Titanic sank. So in, in a way, it gives you more confidence that these were actually not conspirators, that they all went out to seek the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And then Agrippa says this, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? I know if you're here doubting that I just did not persuade you enough right now. 
a New Testament scholar who's also a non-believer, in conclusion to a debate about the resurrection, says this. You've moved from history to faith. You can show historically that people claimed they saw Jesus alive afterwards. You can draw the conclusion that they probably believed it. But if you yourself agree that Jesus was raised from the dead, you are saying that it was an act of God and history. What you are doing is no longer history, it's faith. Exactly. Historians don't believe the supernatural. You'd be a bad historian if you did. It has to be explained. It has to be naturalistic. So for me, I need a God who I can't explain. I need a God that's beyond my understanding because if I could understand it, that puts me at the same level as God. And I don't know about you, but some of the issues and problems and the brokenness that I'm facing, I need a God at a whole new level. I need a God that's beyond my understanding. A God that does things that are bigger and more powerful than me that I can just not fathom. So I'm going to trust in that God. Because if he can do things that I can understand, well, we're both in the same boat. And I don't want to be in the same boat. I want to be, have him in a different boat. So the reality is that there's not going to be enough evidence to convince anybody. Could there be some confidence? Absolutely. But the most compelling argument for Jesus is not the facts of his existence. The most compelling argument for Jesus are the facts of his existence in your life. You could go on and have debates, and you see them, you could YouTube it, they'll be all over. It's been so fun going diving into this. I've read so many books, pulling in um, Jeremiah. There's a book called Body of Proof, Justin Briley's Unbelievable. Lee Strobel's case for Christ, they're great. They give you a lot of confidence. They're like, hey, maybe I'm not insane. Maybe there's to it. But the reality is I've never seen anyone debated into a faith. The most compelling argument is saying, look, I don't know what Paul says. Jesus encountered me and has changed my life. Like the blind man in John 9, who Jesus healed him, and all the Jewish leaders are trying to say, what happened? What happened? What did he do? And he's like, look, man, I don't know what to tell you. I was once blind, but now I see. And it was because of Jesus. Are you living your life as the most compelling argument for the life of Jesus? I hope that's convicting. It's convicting to me. I believe that road to Damascus encounters still exists today. Literally and also a little bit more personally. New York Times has an article about a Muslim named Bashir Muhammad. In fact, he was a jihadist, an extreme jihadist. Hated Christians, killed Christians. His wife got sick, and he got a phone call from a, his cousin, who was a believer, a Christian. He prayed on the phone, and he immediately got ticked off, hung up the phone. How dare you blaspheme me? How dare you bring that into my house? But guess what? His wife got healed. That didn't do it. Until he had a dream where Jesus encountered him. And so did his wife. And literally, this was actually near Damascus, to be honest with you. And he says this. He said, there's a big gap between the God I used to worship and the one I worship now, Mr. Muhammad said. We used to worship in fear. Now everything has changed. 
For Mr. Muhammad, all of this has nevertheless come at a high price. His rejection of Islam makes him a target for his fundamentalist former allies, and he fears they will one day catch up with him. If they do, however, he reckons he now has the greatest protection of all. I trust, he says, in God. There was a time when I was in Ethiopia, and we were working at a compound, and in the middle of the night, we were woken up to some man screaming in pain for hours. And the next morning, I said, what was that noise? And the leaders of this church, which was the only church in a, in a majority Muslim area, was like, that was a man who gave himself to Jesus. His father-in-law found out, and they came and visited him in the middle of the night, and they beat him to the point of he was almost dead. He crawled his way to our compound, to the st- st- uh, steps of the church, praising God. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, they're going to find out about this, and they're going to go and beat him again. And you got to ask yourself, why would he claim Jesus? There's something compelling. And um, yeah, I saw that, I saw that he was working in my life. And um, well, I, that led to me eventually deciding to get baptized this summer. And um, well, that was me. That was my way of saying to Jesus that I was all in for him and that um, I want to live for him and um, I wanted people to know that I was for him so I got baptized and um, ever since then like my, the past is just the past like I'm not letting any anything that happened in the past affect my relationship with my family or the relationships that I'm going to make and um, yeah it's my testimony Awesome. Hey, Ben, if you could come up. Man, um, hey, we're going to go into a time of response. And I, there's a lot there to digest, isn't there? Joel just throwing out so many nuggets of things. Jose's story is just like, there's so much there. And as we go into a time of communion and a time of prayer, here, here are some of the things I want to kind of like sum up with everything that's been said is two things. Is one, you heard from Jose's story. You heard from what Joel was uh, bringing out of Paul's story. Don't let anger dominate your life. What's the thing in your life right now that's causing you to be angry, causing you to uh, have a reaction that is not justified, or maybe it is justified. But what is everything? Everyone has something in their life. Maybe it's even a spouse that's like, "Hey, they're not doing their job." Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's something else. But what is that thing that you just want to explode with anger? And as Paul, you know, just kind of said, "No, no, no, no." Like basically, what. His relationship with God made him respond in a way that was not overreactionary. Like, what is going to, how am I going to use this opposition as an opportunity? So that, that's one thing I want you to do. And then the other thing is a shame piece. And you, you look at Paul, and he had every right to be ashamed. And we mentioned this before. My guess, this is my guess, that no one has killed someone here because of their faith. But Paul has. He's a part of that, so he had all the shame. He could have just been like, I am the worst, you know, chain me up. You got Jose's story, right? Jose's story. What got him to Christ was a spout of anger, right? And how God changed that response and how he came ultimately to a place where, you know what? I can't control this, but you can, Lord, and I'm going to give this to you. So this is what I want you guys to do. We're going to just 
bow our heads in prayer. And then we're going to get communion. You can go back and Shelly and Paul are there. Suzanne will be here. I'll be here. If anyone wants to come up for prayer for anything, maybe it's something that you're saying, hey, I just need to just get this off my chest. I just need to unload this. I'm really angry about something. I'm living in shame right now. And we would love to pray for you to release that from you. But as you get communion, you go, you take the elements yourself. Because this is what gives us freedom from those emotions, is what Jesus did on the cross. Unleashes his Holy Spirit. Because the truth is, you can't do this by yourself. We're humans. We're going to mess up. We're going to overreact. So we need the Spirit to come inside of us and for that to be our response. I love when Jesus sent out the 72. He basically said, be, be like snake birds. Be as cunning as a snake and as light as a dove. And that's how we're called to live. Like snake birds. But here's, let's bow our heads before we go. And what I want you guys to do is where you are, put your palms up if you would, if you feel calm. Listen. And he talked about Stephen. But at the end, he talked about his regrets. He talked about his regrets in life. And what I thought was powerful is that his regrets were not, hey, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had spent more time with my family. That wasn't even a regret. I wish that I had laughed more, I had fun more. None of those were the regrets because this is kind of our compass of how we try to live life right now, believe it or not, but this is it. He says, I want to give you two examples of what I regret the most. He's like, one, he was a teacher and a pastor. And he said, I was working and a girl came in and she was brokenhearted and she was a mess. And I said, I can't talk with you right now because I have work to do. And he said a couple weeks later, that girl went home, got her dad's shotgun off the wall, and you can know the rest of the story. He said, what I should have done is I should have preached Jesus to her, should have showed her how much she's loved, how much she is saved, how that Jesus can reveal himself, resurrection power. What I should have done is that, but yeah, work got in the way. How many of you have your work getting in your way to blind you what Jesus is doing in your life? He said there was another boy who came in, similar story. He was actually, you know, struggling with abuse at home, and he's like, you know, I don't have the time to deal with you. The boy left. A year later, he finds out that the boy drowned in a boating accident. He said, how, could I, how did I not just take him home and show him the love of Jesus? How did I not do that? That was his regret. What about you? What about you? Are you living with resurrection power? Are you living with the belief that Jesus truly came and he died and he was resurrected so that we would have eternal life, but also that we would be a part of bringing his kingdom here, that we are as his hands and his feet? It's not, again, it's not about winning an argument. It's not about proving the existence of Jesus. My hope, if we would all leave here and say, you know what, my job is to prove the existence of Jesus in me. That's just it. I'm going to love. I'm going to serve. I'm going to sacrifice. I am going to let people know that I believe in Jesus and I believe that he was resurrected and that belief is going to change everything I do. So no matter what comes your way and things are going to come your way, no matter what brokenheartedness, no matter what struggles, you have resurrection power in you and you have a different perspective than anybody else. Lord, I pray right now, Jesus, that everyone, that you would reveal yourself in this moment as we are just calm and quiet, Lord. Lord, we 
the Bible says like, to cast our anxieties on you, Lord. That word cast is, is not a delicate handing over, but it is a violent throwing at. So, Lord, I pray that we would throw at the things in our life that are bogging us down, that we would chuck the things at Jesus. He's the best catcher that has ever exists. He will catch it. He will take it. We give it to you, Lord, because we know what you've done for us. You've died and you rose again. You are doing a work, Lord. Give us eyes to see what you're doing. Give us eyes to see, Jesus, that you're in it. And when things come that are unexplainable, when things that come that make no sense, Lord, we just say, I don't get it, but I'm trusting that you get it. So I'm trusting you, Jesus. The God who sent his son, who died and was resurrected and is still alive and still at work today. These aren't stories of the past, but they're stories of our past that give us confidence for the stories of the now. So Jesus, we live with that confidence and in your precious name we pray.